All right, so we're going to jump into 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse, uh, verses 6 through 16 this morning. And before we jump in, I want to encourage you, I want you guys to get your phones out, I want you to get your Bibles out, however you read, and I want you to follow along in this text this morning. So if you'd stand with me, I'm going to read it, and uh, if you'd follow along with me, that'd be, it'll be on the screens, but I think it's really good for us to read it for ourselves. Verse 6 through 16 of chapter 4 says this, if you put these things before the brothers or sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of a value in every way, as it holds promise for this present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the, set the believers an example in speech and conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we come before you this morning. Um, God, I feel just blessed to be in the city we live in at the time we're living in. I thank you for each individual in this room this morning, and we come before you humbly and holy, Jesus, and ask that you have your way with us. We invite you to move amongst this time through your word. We open up our hearts to hear from you and to challenge us this morning, God. I pray that your word would not return void. I pray for those in this room that even in maybe stumbling in here this morning and not wanting to come, um, that there would be just a, a divine um, intersection with you this morning. God, that they would find themselves in a place where they would look you straight in the face, Jesus, and realize where they're at in their life and how desperately they need you. Jesus, we give you this time. We pray your blessing on it, and we thank you for your word in your name. Amen. You guys can be seated. If you like underlining things in your Bible, I want you to go to verse 7 in this text this morning. And I want you to underline the phrase at the end of that passage. Paul says something. He says, train yourself for godliness. And I want you to underline that this morning. I think this is key to Paul's exhortation in this passage, that one statement. Train yourself for godliness. Every so everything in this passage sort of leads up and points back to this phrase. Um, in, in verse 9, when Paul writes that the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He's talking about this exhortation to train yourself in, in, in godliness. He's saying that you can count on this and, and that you should accept it fully, that there's no need to debate over this, that, that it's legit. Later in verse 10, when he writes to this end, and he's referring to godliness, he says in verse eight, holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, this emphasis on godliness that, that we read about in this passage, it shouldn't be a surprise to us if you've been here um, over the last couple months and you've read through 1 Timothy prior. 
because this theme of godliness is sort of a key emphasis for Paul all throughout this letter. So I want to remind you of some of the things that Paul has already said about godliness in 1 Timothy. Uh, if you go back to chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, Paul begins by talking about the antithesis of godliness, right? If you look at 1 Timothy 1.9, he says, But for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. And so he mentions ungodliness there. But if you, if you go one chapter to the right, chapter 2, verse 2, we'll call, we're called there to lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And then you see in chapter 2, verse 10, speaking specifically to women in that text and about women who profess godliness. In, verse, in chapter 3, 16, he refers to the mystery of godliness. And I'll come to, back to that in a little minute, in a minute. But then he hits godliness again here in chapter 4 a couple of times. And then when you get to chapter 6, he mentions godliness a couple of times. In verse 3, chapter 6, he says, teaching that accords with godliness. In verse 5, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And he realizes that there are some, some of them that had misunderstood godliness. But then in verse 6, he talks about godliness with contentment. And then in verse 11, he calls us to pursue righteousness and godliness. All of that to say, godliness is a big deal to Paul. Godliness matters to Paul. Godliness actually should be a big deal to you and I. And it also tells us that Paul's not merely interested in only our salvation. Like that's not the end. But that he's also concerned about what, it ta what takes place thereafter. When you get saved, when you're transformed through the gospel by Jesus, what happens after that? Godliness seems to be super important. And maybe for some of you, this is a reminder of things that you've already seen, you've already read. But let's, let's ask a couple of other questions. First off, first question that comes to my mind is, what is godliness? Like, what in the world does he mean? And I want to put a couple simple definitions of godliness on the screen. And I know there's others, but I think these two are helpful. Um, the first one is this. Is that godliness means having a right or proper or good or accurate attitude in response to God. Another commentator adds that godliness is a preoccupation with God that gets manifested, that gets fleshed out, gets lived out in right reality. And I think most of us get this from a practical sort of relational standpoint. Has anybody in this room ever been infatuated with somebody? Husbands, you better raise your hands, dang it. I've been married for 22 years in August. I remember my wife and I dated for four years prior to getting married. And um, I remember dating my wife and I remember feeling like I never wanted to be away from her. Anybody ever remember that feeling? I remember doing the craziest things to be around her, to get near her, like while she was at work, leaving flowers in her car, doing whatever I can to be near my wife. I remember when I was 18 and we had uh, recently started dating, my parents took my brother and I on a cruise. And it was this amazing cruise through uh, uh, up, up and down the, the Mexico coast. And I remember being on this cruise and the whole time being miserable, right? Because I'm like, I just want to be with Heather and I just want to talk to her. And we didn't have cell phones at the time, right? So there was no way to get in touch with her. But all I wanted to do was be near Heather. That's all I wanted. And so I was willing to be on the best vacation ever and be heartsick, love struck 
for my wife because I wanted to be near her. I was infatuated. Godliness is being infatuated with God and wanting nothing more than to draw close to him, wanting nothing more than to please him. But the question is, how do we attain godliness in our lives? How does that happen? And this is a really important question when we talk about godliness. When we talk about godliness, we're not talking about moralism. And so I want to make that distinction this morning. Oftentimes, godliness gets confused with moralism. Now, are our morals and ethics and right living connected to godliness? Certainly, like 100%. Your morals and, eth and ethics and your right living are to be spurred by something that's greater, something deeper that's happening in you. And so how do you attain godliness? Well, well the Bible's answer is that godliness is birthed out of a heart change that comes through a relationship with Jesus. Second Peter 1.3 defines this pretty well for us. Peter describes it this way. God's divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, Jesus, who called us to his own glory and excellence. Sounds like a pretty good answer, right? That godliness is a gift of God, that it's been granted to us by God through our knowledge of Jesus and not knowledge of Jesus for information's sake. Please do not get me wrong. But knowledge of Jesus as in relationship with him, meaning you and I can't do it. You and I, we cannot produce godliness in our lives. We can't achieve it. It's granted to us. It's been graced to us by God. It's a gift through Jesus in Jesus. Amen? In fact, I'll take it a step further. You look back at 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul writes that great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. There's that word again. He goes on to say that he was manifested in the flesh, that he was vindicated by the Spirit, that he was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's the gospel. And what we realize is that Jesus is himself godliness. He's it. But the first part of the verse is really important, is that Jesus is the mystery of godliness. So how do we attain godliness? You give your life to Jesus. Surrender your life to Jesus, that's how. And here's the harsh reality, is that you can be a religious person without Jesus. You can be religious without Jesus. Do you hear that? You can be religious without Christ. You can be moral without Jesus, excluding Jesus. You can be a great neighbor without Jesus, but you cannot be godly without Jesus. You can't. And the scriptures teach us that only the godly inherit eternal life. Good, nice, moral, religious people do not need to be godly, which means what? That we need Jesus. We need to put on Jesus. But there's a spiritual dilemma in all of this, which is that if godliness is granted to us by God, and it's only attainable to us through Jesus, then we're told in verse 7 to do what? Train ourselves for godliness. So if you go over to chapter 6, verse 11, why are we called to pursue godliness? 
Why would we need to pursue that which you and I already have who are in Christ Jesus? You see the dilemma that I'm talking about. Why would you need to do something if it's something that you already possess? And so is it given to me by Jesus or is it something that I need to pursue and something that I need to train myself up in? And I think we can find our answer looking at 2 Corinthians 5. This very well-known passage, the, the reformer Martin Luther called, referred to this section of scripture as the great exchange in chapter five. Paul says in verses 17 and 18, if anyone is in Christ, in Christ, meaning you're a follower of Jesus, he, she, is a new creation. He says the old has passed away. And then he says, behold, like look, notice that the new has come. And then he says, all of this is from God. So what Paul's telling us is that, is that at salvation, we aren't just merely forgiven, you're actually changed. You're changed. He calls us a new creation. He says that the old has passed away. He says that the new has now come, but new what? New everything, new heart, new identity, new community, new desires, new passions, new affections, new pursuits, new power, new creation. Anybody testify to that in, this morning? That when you came to him, you were new. Something changed within you. It wasn't anything that you did. It was a work of God within you. And it's in this newness that's granted to us by God through Jesus that we're called, that we're enabled to live out who we now are in Christ Jesus. Church, what are your deepest desires? Do you yearn for righteousness in your life? Do you love Jesus with a love that is indescribable even though you don't see him? Do you, do you crave growing in your knowledge and your understanding of God? Do the sins that, that you used to laugh about now grieve you on the inside because you've been changed? That's evidence of something that is new, that has happened in you. This doesn't mean that you don't have conflicting desires. We all do in our lives. But what are your deepest desires? Is Jesus at the root of them? Do you confess this morning that Jesus is Lord? Do you believe in your heart that God raised him from, from the dead? And I mean, do you really believe it? I've told this, this uh, the, the, the story before this morning, and I'll keep this short, but um, that passage um, in, in John chapter 11, where, where this, this is quoted from, uh, I, I was speaking at a funeral one time for a, a woman that was not a believer and was a friend of mine's mom. And there's about 400 people standing in this little room and, and the, the standing room only, so it's lined around the edges with people. And as I'm standing there, I'm like, I'm giving this, this funeral service knowing that the majority of the people in the room are not believers. And I get to the section of scripture and I begin to just read it. And it was the craziest thing at the point that I said, do you believe this? And all I did was read it from the passage. This guy drops like a fly like straight to the ground. I'm like, what the heck? All these people run over to him and they're, and I'm like, what do I do? Like, what do I do? And I just like keep on going with the, with the service. And afterwards we're up by the graveside portion of the service and I grab this guy, I'm like, are you okay? He's like, I, I have no idea what happened. Like you were just up there reading that text and then all of a sudden, next thing I know, like I was on the ground and I said, I think that Jesus is working in your life. Like, it's not a coincidence that the question that was asked was, do you believe this? And maybe that's a question that he's prodding you in right now. Do you believe it? 
What is the world's greatest beef with the church? Is that we profess to know something and say a lot of things, but we don't actually do them. Belief is actually what we know to be true in action, right? When you believe something, you take what you know and you actually put it to work. Belief is not just, in my mind, I've got my mind wrapped around it and all is good. No, if you believe it, you actually do it. And that's what Paul's driving at in this passage. Do you believe it enough that you're going to actually do it? Hear me, Anthem, that this has been granted to you by God. It's his grace on your life. That's godliness in you through Jesus. That's the Spirit's work. You know why it's not the flesh's work? Because the flesh opposes the things of the Spirit. And that's evidence of the Spirit in you. That's the Holy Spirit testifying to your spirit that you're a child, a son or daughter of the Most High God. That's his work in you. And what Paul is saying is that now that this has happened internally, hear this, work it out in your life. If it's real and it's true, work it out in your life. Train yourself up in it. Keep on pursuing it. Work out what God has worked in through you. So how do we work it out? Well, at the, at the very least, through spiritual disciplines, right? Prayer, Bible reading, meditation, serving, confessing, giving, attending. Like, honestly, what you guys are doing right now is even a part of fleshing it out. Like, we, we give so little credit to what it is we're partaking in this morning. We come together as the community of faith, the body of believers, to uphold and lift up Jesus this morning, to worship him. What we're doing is a sacred thing this morning. That's a part of working it out, that you would deny everything, every other, who wanted to be on their boat this morning, who wanted to be downtown on the lake, on their paddleboard, who wanted to be doing something else, anything else but this. How did you work it out this morning? You said, there's something else that's a priority in my life. And so I showed up here because I set aside the things that were calling my name that I could have done in order to make it a priority to gather with the church to uplift the name of Jesus this morning. There's power in that. We do this by worshiping. We do this by fasting. I mean, practicing the spiritual disciplines is one way that we work this out. But understand this, that the spiritual disciplines in your life are not the end. The spiritual disciplines are the means to the end, right? Spiritual disciplines, they mature us. They draw us closer to the Lord. They help us to abide in Jesus and live as God has called you to live, to live godly because you are godly in Jesus. All of this is the basis for what Paul writes in verse eight. For while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is a value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. You could have a whole sermon series on this one verse. But first off, working it out is good. Paul, Paul says that working out is good for you, right? Where's Ethan? I even saw Brett here this morning. Like, oh, he's not here. Two trainers in our church. Like, working out is good, isn't it? And who wants to follow a trainer that does not look like they work out? Anybody in this room? <laughs> like you Instagram stalk them. Does he have six pack abs? 
You know, like, what's the dude look like? Does he eat right? Like, you want to follow the people who have actually disciplined their life in such a way that they're aspiring to godliness. They're pursuing Jesus. They don't just tell you about him. And so understand that who is Paul talking to? Timothy, a pastor in this church. And what he's saying is, Timothy, it is not good enough for you to just know. Timothy, if you're going to lead my people, I need you to be somebody who's going to walk out the things, the precepts that you teach. Live it out. And this isn't just to Timothy, this is to you and I this morning. We need to be spiritually trained. We're literally training in godliness. And it says it holds promise in the present life and the life to come. What a cool thing. What promise does godliness have for us right now? What promise? Well, you know what godliness doesn't promise us? Godliness does not promise you health. And godliness does not promise you wealth in this present life. It doesn't. Also, you can be the most godly person, loving Jesus, training yourself up in righteousness, pursuing him, and godliness still can't promise you a good name, right? Maybe even the opposite of that. But you know what godliness does promise you now? Something that all of you in this room are desperately desiring, peace with God. Something that the world cannot give you, he does give you. Peace with God. Peace in your spirit. Contentment. Who needs a little bit of that this morning? I do. And when you're walking closely with Jesus, even when life might be spiraling out of control, you just feel this peace, like beyond comprehension. You, you, you feel contentment. That's what it promises to us. Think about the difference between a pipe and a tree. I want you to think about this for a second. What do you do with a pipe? A pipe, you pour water in one side, and what happens? It dumps out the other. Sounds like a fun toy, right? What happens with the tree? Water goes into a tree, and water nourishes a tree. The tree absorbs everything it can from the water. And what happens? Does the tree just dump the water back out? What's the tree use the water to do? Produce fruit, growth, it matures, it gets green. Like all these amazing things happen as a result of the tree absorbing the nutrients from the things that it's taking in. A pipe does not do that. We need to be trees. Now what about the life to come that he references here? Well, it, it holds promise for the life to come is what he says. Because what we do now matters. It also holds promise for the life to come because our pursuit of godliness now assures us that the life to come is ours already. You've already got it. If you wanna live a godly life in Christ Jesus now, hold on to that because that's a demonstration that you've already entered into eternal life, that you're already in process. Isn't that amazing? But there's another connection to godliness that Paul addresses in 2 Timothy 3.12. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted, is what he says. Interesting. Why? Because godliness actually invites persecution as we live in, as exiles here on this land. It invites it. This is not our home. There's a God of this age who is against you, who is against us. And so persecution will come. We will 
receive backlash for what it is we stand for and the things. There's a reason it's difficult for you to even come to church on a Sunday morning. There's a reason when all hell breaks loose in your home and you and your wife or, or your husband are going at it and you're fighting and one of you says, can we stop and pray? What happens? Oh no, not right now. <laughs> That's the last thing I wanna do. Why? There is an opposition in your life that wants everything but you to be grounded in Jesus, to grow in him, to pursue godliness, to walk with him, to stop in moments of chaos and to pray and to exalt his name, to give gratitude in the seasons in your life when you have everything to be bummed out about and ticked off for, but to find the things to be grateful for. What is it that God is doing in your life? And yet godliness not only invites persecution, but it actually grants us the power to walk through it, to use it for growth in Christ-likeness. And so godliness in that way has a value in every way. Let's look at verses nine and 10. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So accept it fully, don't doubt it. He says, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. The last part of this passage causes some confusion for people in this statement because many ask whether it means that, oh, everybody will be saved. Like that's just the guarantee that everybody will be saved. He says, the savior of all people. But he goes on to say, especially those who believe. But it doesn't mean that all people are saved by Jesus, but that Jesus is the only way that you can be saved. Jesus is the only savior and the savior for all people who believe. A very simple illustration I heard once was that of a ship that's sinking and there's only one lifeboat in the water. And the lifeboat is the only means to be saved and the only people that will be saved are those that climb aboard the lifeboat and it's the same with Jesus. The lifeboat's there and you make a deliberate decision in your life to get on it. If you're waiting for it to just happen, it won't. You actually have to take the initiative to get on the boat. And if you've ever studied the book of Acts, there's this great scene in Acts 16 where Paul and Silas are in this Philippian uh, jail cell and an earthquake comes, the doors open, the shackles fall off, and then they stay there. And the jailer, he's asleep, He's supposed to be keeping watch. He wakes up, he sees what's going on. He thinks he should just take his life because the people that he was supposed to be watching for actually escape. But before he does that, Paul and Silas cry out and they say, don't do it, don't do it. Because sometimes God puts us in hairy situations so that others have the opportunity to come to Jesus, which is exactly what happens. The, the jailer comes to Paul and Silas and asks them what he must do to be saved. And then Paul and Silas say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And the only way to be saved is to believe in the Lord Jesus, but only for those who believe in the Lord will be saved. Do you believe in Jesus? I mean, that's not a rhetorical question this morning. Many of you at face value will, be, will say yes, and I will say, show me the fruit of your life. Do you believe in Jesus this morning? Has it changed the way you live, the way you interact with others? Has it changed the way you interact with your spouse? Has it changed the way you run your business? Has it changed the way you do life, the way, the way you teach others? Has it changed the way you raise your kids? Has it changed the way you interact with others at school or at the grocery store or at the gas station? Has it changed you? Do you believe it enough that it's impacting the way you live? 
Verse 11, he says, command and teach these things. Stop there for a second. The short little verse, verse 11, command and teach these things. What are these things that Paul's talking about? They're the things regarding godliness. Remember back to uh, uh, chapter three, verse 16, the gospel is shared right there in that, that one little section. Like these are the, these things. And Paul sort of doubles down on what Paul already said to Timothy in verse six. He said, if you put these things before the brothers, the sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you followed. So command and teach these things. Why should, why should he command them? Does that not sound harsh to anybody in here when you read that? Command them. Teaching sounds a little bit more mellow. But both commanding and teaching are necessary. Commanding has this implication that you're calling people to submit to an authority. But, but to what authority are they being called to submit to? Not Timothy's authority. That's not what Paul's telling him. The, the authority that they're being called to submit to is God's authority in God's word. That's what they're submitting to. He's telling him to command and teach these things because these are the words of God, not Timothy's words. These are the words of God. So command and teach them because they come from God himself. But it seems as though there's an issue that's sort of arisen in the church in Ephesus at this time, which Paul addresses in verse 12. This is like the youth pastor's favorite verse right here, right? Let no one despise you or look down on you because you are young. I have this one memorized. But set an example for the believers in speech and life and love and faith and impurity. In the ESV, set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. How old is Timothy during this time? Some say he's probably in his early 20s. He's pretty young. But the reality is that he's young and that he's pastoring the church in Ephesus. He's shepherding people, he's teaching, he's commanding others. And it seems as though some people are looking down on Timothy because he's young, perhaps even discounting Timothy because they're older than him, because they have more experience than him. And this looks to be like a legitimate fear of Timothy's that how do I lead these people when they're so much older than I am and I have nothing to offer, I'm just this young guy. I don't even know what I'm doing. And Paul's response to Timothy is don't let anyone despise you for your youth, but set an example for them in five ways. He says, in your speech, like watch how you talk. I mean, we all need to listen to this. Watch how you talk. Your conduct, like live an upright life. Watch what you do and you don't do. In your love, like both in loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. In your faith, but the thing about young people in, in ministry, in my experience, because I was once a young person um, and surrounded by young leaders 20 years ago. I've watched 90% of the people that I started out with in ministry 20 years ago flame out, 90%. I can count on one hand um, the amount of people that I'm still running with that went into ministry with me 20 years ago out of maybe 100. What do we know about young people? And this isn't, this isn't to be negative, but it's, there's a ton of passion and a ton of zeal. And we flame out fast because we don't have the experience and we're not surrounded by the people we need to be to help keep us steadfast. And so when Paul says, in your faith, he's like, don't be the person that's just gonna chase the next thing. 
Like Paul's instruction to Timothy is don't be that guy. Like Timothy, be steadfast. And then he says in your purity. And I want to challenge us this morning that this is not just the things you do. Your purity is what's inside of you. Like what you think about, who you are when nobody else is around. Are you pure in heart and in mind? And what Paul's telling Timothy is to be the believer or the follower of Jesus you want them uh, to be, you need to be that yourself. You want them to have a passion for Jesus and to run unabashedly towards him, then Timothy, you gotta do the same thing. And that's always the best response when it comes into conflict in the church. Uh, I want you to hear the twofold call that Paul gives Timothy. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Don't, let, don't allow your youth to be an excuse for not being somebody who leads by example. Like that's just not an excuse. Your youth is no excuse to not set an example for all the believers in these five ways, speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. They're vitally important. But listen to this, none of those things are age dependent, are they? None of them. Remember King Josiah was eight years old when he became king. He led one of the greatest revivals in the history of Israel at 26 years old. David was an adolescent when he took on Goliath. He stepped out in faith. He set an example to everyone in faith when he took out Goliath. Uh, in response to God's call on him, Jeremiah responds in Jeremiah 1.6, I do not know how to speak for I'm only a youth. And he was a prophet on behalf of the Lord. Mary was chosen as a young teenage girl to literally bear the Messiah. Like throughout church history, some of the most prominent leaders, teachers, theologians in history were young when they started. John Calvin was in his 20s when he wrote a systematic theology, in his 20s. One of the greatest preachers of all time, Charles Spurgeon, began preaching at 17. They called him the boy preacher. I've spent much of, much of my life in ministry around younger people. Most of it, you guys, has been around younger people, many of which are get, getting older now and many of which are even in this room this morning. You're getting old. So am I. But over the years, I've looked around at the younger people that I've been surrounded by, and oftentimes I've thought to myself, these people love Jesus more than most. They have a desire for God and his word more than most. They're living by faith more than most. They have a heart for the lost more than most. And the younger generations have always inspired me through my whole life. They've always intrigued me. But I guess my question is, are years helpful to us? Is it helpful to grow older and have experience and wisdom? Yes, they should be. But honestly, the challenge for us this morning is that it depends on how you spend those years, doesn't it? I know a ton of 50 and 60 year old Christians who've spent decades in their life training, who haven't spent decades in their life training themselves for righteousness. And at 50 and 60 years old, they're no further along than they were at 20. Because Jesus was not the priority to them. And sadly, those years have been little help at all. But godliness doesn't come with age, godliness comes with the pursuit of Jesus. Okay. I'm almost done. Just a couple more verses. Verse 13, he says this, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. So here are the, the, the apostolic instructions for us from the Apostle Paul. The church is to read the scriptures. 
The church is to teach the scriptures. The church is to exhort the scriptures. Like teaching is this like systematic unpacking of the scriptures, what we're doing now. Exhortation is this call for how do we apply what it is that we're being taught. Those who hear my words, Jesus says, and build their lives upon it. They're building their lives upon the rock. And when the storms come, he says, the house, that life, will actually stand the test. And so this is what the scripture says, that this is the difference it should mean in your life, hearing and doing. Read it, teach it, exhort it. Read it, learn it, unpack it, and do it. And there's something here that's just so weighty for a pastor like myself when I read this. Understand, Paul is addressing a pastor, a letter to him, and gets so personal in this, set, in this section of scripture. But I want you to see something that's really subtle and, and I think really important in this letter. One of the reasons why Paul writes to Timothy, who's the pastor there in Ephesus, is that he has to address some people who had arisen from within the church and are, te and are teaching false doctrines, right? I mean, they go all the way back to chapter one, take it, look at verse three and four. He says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. But now in our text in chapter four, he doubles down and he says to Timothy, command these things, teach these things, exhort these things, do the work of ministry, Timothy. Don't let people discount you because you're young. But hear what he says in verse 13. In light of this, how should you live instead? Like in light of all the crap that's going on in the church right now, all over the world, how should we respond? His answer is to teach the Bible. Like, just teach it. Just teach the Bible. Read it, teach it, exhort it. Later in 2 Timothy, he says, preach it in season and out of season. Because why? Because it's the spirit-inspired word of God. And it always profits you and your listeners when you do that. That's what he's saying to Timothy. Don't get involved in the silly mist. Don't chase the new next best thing. Don't get caught up in things. Don't get distracted. Teach the Bible, Timothy. That's his answer. That's his counsel. Teach the Bible. Churches need to remember this. We need to hear this. The body of Christ needs this because it's not our words. It is the word of God. And then Paul adds in verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Here's the deal. Elders don't give gifts. Where did the gifts come from? From God. Church leadership does not give you gifts. God gives you gifts. But Paul, in this moment, it's the sweetest section, actually, because he's reminding Timothy of what the elders did. That they affirmed you, Timothy. They commissioned the gift that you'd been given. They sent you out. Don't forget this. And I actually think it's just really amazing what Paul's doing here, reminding Timothy of what he already knows. Sometimes we need that in our lives, don't I? Don't we? Anybody in here, maybe this morning, even need to be reminded of something that you already know. Like, I need that affirmation regularly. Ask my wife, you know? I need to be reminded sometimes, like, don't stop, babe. I know this is hard. I know you're weathering a storm. I know there's hurt and there's pain. You have to keep going. God has called you to this. Don't you remember how we started? 
And my challenge to you guys this morning is, do you remember that day that you gave your life to Jesus? Like this girl at camp that's like, I'm all in. I want to get baptized next week. That's a mile marker moment in her life that 10 years from now, when crazy things happen, you can look back on and say, do you remember? You went in the water. Like you profess to know and follow him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do you remember? Some of you this morning just need the simple reminder. God started something in your life five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and he is not done. Do not flame out. And to be radically honest with you, I'm 14 years in to being a part of planning this church. There's probably not a month that goes by that I don't just go, I'm ready to be done. I can be a barista at a coffee shop. I know one, right? And those moments become these clarifying moments where it's like God says, are you gonna double down? Like, I know it's hard flame out you've got this remember I sent you and I called you so Paul's affirming him he's reminding him Timothy he, he wants Timothy to remember that he was called and sent and to not forget that which brings us to two of the most sobering verses in the Bible and I want to close with them and, and, and tackle it a bit um as you pastor people, these become some pretty crucial texts. Uh, I take them to heart. Paul ends by writing, practice these things. He says, actually immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Like watch what you teach, Paul. Keep a close watch. Persist in this, don't stop. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. <laughs> Three quick challenges. One, don't be quick to give up on the spiritual gift that God's given you. Paul challenges Timothy to practice and immerse himself in it. That, that what he was doing uh, like he needed to immerse himself in it because people needed to see his progress. Like people were encouraged as Paul, as Timothy pressed in and he immersed himself in it. The people would be led and would follow because they would see the progress that Timothy's making. It spurs each of us on. Anthem, we all have different gifts, but hear the instructions that are given to you, the church, to not neglect them, but practice them, to immerse yourself in them. Second, that your life and your teaching are key. Knowing truth is important, but what we know has to be backed up by how we live. This is for all of us. And then Paul ends by saying that if Timothy persists in this, he'll save both his hearers and himself. What in the world does that mean, right? The first command is Timothy, watch yourself. The second command is to watch his teaching. The third command is that he must persist in this, keep on in this. Never think that you've arrived, but be diligent in this and keep on keeping on. There's never a time in your life where you go, that's it, I'm good. 
like it's enough. And actually, some of the most discouraging stories for me in 25 years of ministry have been watching people get older and then say things like, you know what, I did all that in my 20s and 30s, like we served in the church, we gave a lot, and now we're kind of on cruise control. Like we've done all that, now it's time for the next generation to step up. My challenge would be, how's the next generation gonna learn it if you quit doing it? They're not. So the challenge for you and I is keep going, to persist, to believe that even what we're doing and setting up and tearing down on a Sunday morning, to believe that what we're doing and emptying ourselves into the youth in our church is actually a very good thing, that it carries, it carries eternal weight with it. But we also know, as he ends in this passage, and he says, right, to, uh, for by doing so you'll save both yourself and your hearers, we know that we're saved by grace through faith and not by works so that no one can boast. We know that. I wholeheartedly believe that. We're saved by grace through faith. It's a free gift from God. But that text in Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is really just a confirmation. It's a confirmation in what we read in the next verse, that we are also God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And so when a pastor, when a pastor watches themselves, watches their teaching, watches and walks, uh, and teaches good doctrine, he walks in obedience to the Lord, like when a pastor continues to walk that out, they prove themselves to be a workmanship of God because there's something about steadfastness, there's something about persistence and staying the course. There's something about that being us, being a new creation in Christ. Like, I don't act like I used to. I continue on with the things that God has asked me to do no matter how hard, hard it is. But when a pastor lacks personal holiness and forsakes that in their life, things go downhill. When a pastor lacks the good doctrine and stops teaching the gospel of Jesus, they show that they're not the workmanship of God, that they're not a new creature in, in Christ, that their work, their faith is in vain. And when that happens, the effects on that can be like devastating. I, I wanna close by reminding you that these just are not words exclusive for pastors. This is a word to all of us. We need to persist, we need to persevere, we need to toil, we need to strive, we need to teach, we need to exhort, we need to command, we need to train, we need to pursue, we need to practice by way of the strength that God has provided us in Christ Jesus. But there's some of us here right now, I'm just gonna be honest, you feel like packing it in. You're done. I'm tired, I'm sick of church, I'm sick of life, I'm sick of my marriage, I'm sick of my job, go down the list, you're just done. You've predetermined in your mind that you're gonna pack it in, you feel discouraged, you feel defeated, and I 100% get it, I had the same week. I'm done. But I wanna encourage you this morning that we need to carry on that we need to set our eyes on Jesus, the only fixed thing that we can anchor ourselves to in this world. Everything else will shift and fade. We need to persist in ministry, 
persist in the places that we serve, persist in our parenting, we need to persist in our marriages, we need to persist in our relationships, and we need to do these things not because we're going to attain something that isn't ours now, but because we've attained it already in Christ Jesus, amen? We're going to fix our eyes on it because we've already received an anthem. Be holy because you are holy. Be godly because you are already godly in Christ Jesus. And I want to pray for you this morning because some of you, as I mentioned this, that you're just done. You need a little dose of the Spirit this morning to remind you that it's not over. That you got this. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray for us. And then I'm going to have Henry come up and lead us in communion this morning. It's sobering for a pastor to watch everything taking place in our world right now. There's a ton of pastors that have just totally fizzled out, made poor decisions. That's happened for decades. And it's often easy for us to stand on the other side of that and be the person that's going to throw stones at them. We watch the documentaries, <laughs> we point the fingers. And what I want to be very careful of this morning is to remind you that I dearly love the local church. You should too. Actually, Jesus bled, died, was beat up, mocked, spit on for the salvation of his church. But the reality is, is that there are pastors and people in pulpits today telling people that they're okay before God when they're not. And that stresses me out. That we would lie to people and tell them you're fine, just keep doing what you're doing, when what you need is to become a new creation in Christ Jesus. This morning, there's some of you that need to become a new creation in Christ Jesus. And there's some of you in this room who are sort of fizzling out that need to be reminded of who you are in him. And so as you close your eyes, I'm just gonna ask you if this morning's your morning. Give your life to Jesus, plain and simple. Profess him before all men. Do you believe that he died and that he rose again? That his death granted you forgiveness? That his resurrection granted you new life and that you can walk in the newness of life that he's offered you this morning. If you're here this morning with your heads bowed, if you wanna give your life to Jesus, raise your hand this morning. And if you're here this morning, thank you. If you are here this morning and you feel yourself fizzling out and you're hanging on by a thread, raise your hand. I wanna pray for you. And I mean this sincerely because God is not done with you. He's not done with your marriage. He's not done with your friendships. He's not done with you. He's not done with ministry. I want to pray for both of you. Jesus, thank you for those that raised their hands. Thank you for this work that you're doing in us. I pray for my brother that raised his hand to receive Christ this morning, that your spirit would come upon him, Jesus, 
that you'd move in his life, God, that as he professes you, that he wants to walk with and follow you this morning, that you meet him right now in this place. May your spirit envelop him. May your church surround him and walk with him. And may he love you and serve you all of the days of his life. And for those that raised their hand this morning because they feel faint, Jesus, encourage them, remind them of the work that you've done in their life in the past. Remind them that you are not done with them. Encourage us as a church, you aren't done with us, Jesus. 80% of our community does not know you, and I pray, Jesus, that we would not feel as though we have the, the, the luxury to just stop right now. We're living in crucial days, Jesus, where we need your spirit to literally move through your church to draw others into the fold, to to reach others, God, that your joy and your peace would be both expressed and felt and received by the masses. And I pray in Jesus' name that you'd use each person in this room to do your work. God, I thank you for your church and the work that you're doing in her and through her. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to take communion together. You can be seated. Good morning, Anthem. My name is Henry. I am humbled and honored to serve with five other dedicated men on your elder team. I'm going to talk about four words this morning. It comes from a devotional by Henry Nowen called Life of the Beloved. Uh, I'm going to say more than but those are the four words we're concentrating on. It's always encouraging for me to look out and see friends that I know and friends that I haven't met yet. So it's an honor for me to be here. Uh, if I could get enough light to read by, that would be extremely helpful. <laughs> These words come from Matthew, or uh, Mark rather, 14:22. And while they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them saying, take it, this is my body. The first word is take or chosen. Jesus chose the bread. He also chose us. He selected us. He sees each of us as special. Meditate on that just for a moment. He chose me. He chose you. He chose us. Second word is blessed. Note the scriptures record two times when the Father blessed Jesus at his baptism and at the transfiguration. Both times he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus blessed his disciples and by extension us most significantly at his ascension. He reached out his hands and bless them. Isaiah records, since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. That's a great encouragement to us, but also for those friends we have serving in other cultures. Think for a moment of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus says to his chosen, you guys feed them. 
And what did they say? Ah, we don't have much. Jesus says, give me what you have and I will bless it. Give us, give to Jesus what we have. That'll bless us. Jesus chose us, then he blessed us. Now, this is a tough one. Broken. Maybe a better word is suffering. The Father allowed Jesus to suffer for our sake. Each of us suffers a unique and personal ways. Often it deals with relationships with others revealing our deep need for communion. Our brokenness and suffering are not accidents. It prepares us to be given. Last is given. So chosen, blessed, broken, and given. The bread was chosen, blessed, broken, and given. Jesus was chosen, blessed, broken, and given. Each of us are chosen, blessed, broken, to be given for others. As we prepare to partake, we have stations in the front and the back. There's two small cups. The bottom is a gluten-free wafer for anybody who's concerned. Each month we advise that communion is between you and the Lord. It does not make you holy or take away sins. If you do not know Jesus yet, now would be a good time to settle that. See the person you came with, come up to me afterwards, come to one of the prayer stations and get that settled. Finally, parents, we trust that you determine the preparation of your children to partake. So let's pray. Father, as we get ready to celebrate the birth of a nation that you ordained and have made uh, significant in the world, let us be thankful. Let us reach out to our fellow countrymen across the world as well, where we would be servants. We would apply all of Chris's sermon of Paul's message to Timothy about godliness and behavior. Lord, we would have that central in our minds. Lord, that we would be the sweet aroma of the knowledge of you in every place. In Jesus' name, amen.